0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: So this is going to be a different kind of Axe Files. Normally, I sit with my guests and we talk about their lives and their journeys as well as issues of the day. But given the enormity of the coronavirus story, I thought it would be good to bring back an old friend, Dennis McDonough, who served as the White House Chief of Staff for the last four years of the Obama administration, before that as a senior member of the National Security Council there, to talk about how these kinds of crises were handled in that White House and about how it's being handled now and but what we should expect or hope for in the future. Here's that conversation. Dennis McDonough, it's great to see you again. You know, at, in times of emergency and stress, you want to run to, and I say this as a Jew, you kind of want to run to the, the parish priest, right? Uh, <laughs> and and you're the closest thing I know uh, to one, having come from a uh, family of 11, a devout Catholic family of 11. I think you've got several of them in your family. Yes. So yes. you'll have to do for now. <laughs> but the, But the other reason I wanted to talk to you is uh, that you have a lot of experience in dealing with these kinds of, I mean, we haven't quite faced one like this, but uh, pandemics, the threat of pandemics, you saw it from the Senate side, you've seen it at the NSC when you were working there, and as White House Chief of Staff. So I thought you'd be the perfect guy to sort of give us some perspective on where we are, why we're here, what's gone wrong, and, and as importantly, what we do Now, but just by way of background, you worked with Senator Obama, not just President Obama. But you came after he began working on this. I remember I got a call from him in uh, maybe 2005 when he was a freshman senator. And he had just read a piece in The New Yorker about the avian flu. Yeah. And he was really alarmed that there wasn't enough work being done on finding a vaccine for it and other aspects of it. This was an interest of his yeah. even before he became president. Yeah.
2: It's one of the places that he did a lot of work with the then chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Luger. Mm-hmm. Much has been written about their work together on nonproliferation.
1: Luger was a Republican. Obama was a
2: Democrat. And right. that was considered
1: quaint. Yeah. Now it seems almost impossible.
2: Well, and he's a very senior Republican. Yeah. And uh, Senator Obama then was very junior Republican. Democrat. Yeah. Um, and look I, I to be to be perfectly honest with you, axe that was a lot of work that Mark Lippert did. Yes. Uh, with, yeah. He with went the off Mark, Obama. Mark
1: went off uh, for his naval duty. Yes. And you came in and replaced him. Mark was his foreign policy yeah. and national security advisor. Yeah.
2: I guess it's worth saying I tried to replace him. I, you <laughs> know, he's an irreplaceable guy. <laughs> That's something that right away then Senator Obama saw as a big need. So They went on to write a bill together that authorized uh, much uh, enhanced numbers of investments in a whole range of capabilities inside the US government uh, to make sure that we are investing not only in detection of new threats, new biological threats, but we're also then uh, making sure that we're uh, standing up the capability to develop vaccines. Um, and this, you know, f- frankly, this was had been an issue that I'd been worried about for some time. And uh, you'll recall, in the fall of two thousand one, not long after the attacks of nine eleven in October, there was an anthrax attack against um, Senator Daschle. And I was working for Senator Daschle at the time. I was not, you know, this was enclosed. Uh, this very pure, very highly aerosolized anthrax. Was sent in a letter to his Senate office uh, in the Heart Building. I was he sitting was in the, the Capitol. Democratic leader. He was the Democratic leader. In fact, he was the majority majority leader, leader at,
1: the time. at the time. Yeah,
2: yeah. and um, so that led to you know months of efforts to try to clean out the Heart Building. All sorts of efforts to try to treat those most affected. You'll recall that uh, several uh, post. Workers were impacted on that uh, by that attack. Uh, one uh, post, postal worker, I think, if I have the, if my memory serves, died from that attack. Um, so this has been an issue. This threat of uh, biological, the the use of biological agents, the question of the proliferation of new viruses. Uh, has been an issue that the national security community has been concerned about for some time Uh, and the concern is obviously well-founded not only because of what we saw in 2001 with the anthrax attack but also because what we've seen since then, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, uh, SARS. H1N1 uh, in 2009 when we yeah. were in the White House. Yeah. And then now, of course, Ebola. And now, of course, this new coronavirus.
1: And I know you've had a close in view of all of that. You know, just a side question. I know one of your issues over time had been climate change. You were actively engaged in that issue before being engaged. That issue was, was commonplace. <laughs> and how much has that contributed to the proliferation of viruses and so on. Maybe, maybe that's out of your range. So
2: I think it's a little bit out of my range. It stands to reason, and there's been some writing on this, but I think as we see more extreme weather events and as we see hotter temperatures, I think it stands to reason that we're going to continue to see these new threats. And so the, the – So
1: preparedness becomes – even more That's essential.
2: Absolutely. And there's no, there's really no excuse for being unprepared. And it really then points up a whole series of questions around uh, why the Trump administration took some of the decisions it took. But I, I don't want to get ahead of the conversation.
1: H1N1, you were a, a senior member of the National Security Council yep. staff in 2009. Yeah. Uh, talk about how it got on your radar screen, and how you organized yourselves in the White House. I was in the White House at the time, yeah. but the focus was at the NSC. Yeah. Tell me the role that you played, that, well, so, that all of you played.
2: Yeah. So uh, at the time, the, the real effort was led by the President's Homeland Security and Counterterrorism advisor, John Brennan. Mm-hmm. Um, and your A famous name. Famous name. Uh, and, Great American, great patriot and a kind of a real data-driven um, science-based decision-maker. Um, and you'll recall that uh, after 9-11, President Bush established the Homeland Security Council mm-hmm. to run alongside the National Security Council uh, to make sure that uh, they had dedicated effort consistent with the way the National Security Council conducts a business, its business looking at these uh, threats that uh, you know would cross international borders and and manifest here at home one of the things early that we did uh, under General Jones and Tom Donilon and John Brennan was we looked at the whole National Security Council staff and at the Homeland Security Council staff and we decided that it made sense to merge those two staffs into one um, because we we kind of came to the conclusion that you know the, these uh, threats didn't really recognize borders. what was the borders and what was the homeland and what wasn't. Um, so, this was the first real test of that uh, operation. And so, uh, you know, John did as what is, uh, did precisely what's been done in the National Security Council uh, for a long time, which is to run a clear, transparent science and data based policymaking process that had at the table all the agencies with equity in the decision and with expertise to inform the decision. So that means that the National Security Council was convening obviously HHS, CDC, NIH along with the more traditional Homeland Security agencies, Department of Homeland Security for example, Department of Justice and others. So that they could consider the full range of questions involved in the manifestation of this new. This new strain,
1: and how did that manifest itself in terms of results? What did that produce that allowed you to stem H1N1? Because there was a fear at that time sure was. that that could yeah. become what this is now.
2: Well, there was, uh, a with f- coron- yeah, there, there was a fear of that, and and the real challenge. And I, and I remember, I remember a meeting uh, that John and Rahm convened. in … Rahm Manuel, the chief of staff, the chief of staff at the time, Rahm Emanuel convened at the time in Rahm's office and the discussion at that time uh, in the fall of 2009 was whether we should be in touch with the states about school closings. Mm. And I remember being quite struck by that, by the kind of the severity of that action. Obviously, these questions are – a question like school closings are, and in our system, these are decisions made by school district. You know, so for example, right now in Maryland, uh, Montgomery County is going through this process where they're making you know uh, this decision on a daily basis. The point is, I remember this coming up in the meeting, being struck by the potential severity of of the question, but also recognizing that the real challenge in every one of these crises is to make sure that you can get ahead of the acceleration of the transmission of the virus. Mm -hmm. And so significant actions like that sometimes are called for. Mm -hmm. But you have to make those decisions with all the actors around the table with the expertise. So you got to have the Department of Education in the room. Mm -hmm. You have to have CDC and NIH in the room. And you have to be in a position to make sure that you understand the impact of those decisions and the impact, by the way, of not taking the decision. Mm -hmm. So what did that mean? Actually, it meant that we were able to get ahead of identifying the flu strain, taking steps to mitigate it. Ultimately, we were not as successful on a vaccine as we hoped we might be. But the fact is we had a concrete, transparent, regular meeting rhythm with all the agencies with expertise and equity in the question so that we could get ahead of it.
1: Let's fast forward ahead to the when you became White House Chief of Staff yeah. in the president's second term, 2014, the fall of 2014, yeah. the Ebola yeah. crisis emerges. Yeah. What did you learn from that first experience that informed how you dealt with Ebola?
2: The first and most important thing is to have great people and that's not me. This is to have great people around the table and people are running the process and uh, leading the agencies, so that when you're in a time of crisis, you can rely on them, and that you've built a team uh, that works well together. First and foremost, you look at a team that includes you know Susan Rice and Avril Haines and Lisa Monaco mm-hmm. at the time. She was the Homeland. She was the Homeland direction. Security and Counterterrorism Advisor having replaced John. Yes. Brennan. So she's really leading that interagency effort at the time. We made a decision to bring in, because of what we witnessed in H1N1, the need to have concerted expertise on the target, and wanting to make sure that we weren't losing track of other threats at the time. You'll recall that we had the ISIL threat at the mm-hmm. time, as well as many other threats facing us across the world. That we wanted to make sure that we had dedicated expertise on this, and this is when the president asked Ron Klain to come in to serve Ron as Klain the who had coordinator,
1: been chief of staff for Vice President Biden. Yeah. And for Vice President Gore.
2: Yeah, and a real experienced policymaker, right? somebody who's a good team leader, somebody a great team builder, but also somebody who relies on science and data uh, to drive decision-making.
1: You mentioned that there were a lot of other things going on at the time. We had an interesting exchange yesterday about the tragic loss of life in Iraq. Yes, and it raises the question about – When a country is focused on a crisis like the one we're facing now, do our adversaries around the world sense this as a moment to strike? Is that something that a White House and a national security apparatus has to be particularly sensitive
2: to? I read all the press on this this morning. I haven't seen any updates since then. Uh, So I think we're still trying to ascertain precisely What and who was behind the attack on our guys in Iraq as they've been carrying out these counter ISIS, I guess we say now, activities in Iraq. But we lost two guys. Um, We had, uh, and we lost an ally, a UK soldier, and then we had 10 of our guys hurt. And so obviously, this is something that demands the attention of the White House and the National Security Council. And what you want to make sure is that as a White House, that you have enough capability and enough rhythm and balance in your decision making and in your crisis management that you can handle more than one crisis at a time. Mm-hmm. So whether it's because an adversary senses that this is a an opportune time to strike us or just because we're confronted with a new challenge. We talked a minute ago about climate and the kind of the – propensity for more extreme weather events. The fact is that you have to be prepared to manage more than one crisis at a time. And by the way, any individual crisis as we're witnessing now with the coronavirus crisis manifests in a lot of different ways. Pretty significant economic impact, ongoing very significant public health concerns and then ongoing very significant international concerns that you have to be in a position to manage but you have to be able to manage more than one crisis. And so let's hope we can get to the bottom of precisely what happened yesterday in Iraq and that we're able to make clear to the to our adversaries whoever this was behind this attack was it Iranian supported proxies was it Syrian supported proxies Precisely who was it, and let's make sure that they understand that this is no time that they're going to get away with mm-hmm. uh, but your point is this. your
1: point is you have to be able to multitask the national security apparatus has to be able to multitask, and by extension the president and his team have to be able Absolutely right. to multitask that Ebola crisis came right before an election. It was the midterm elections yeah. of two thousand and fourteen it became a highly political yeah. Lots of criticism of the White House and a lot of fear-mongering about what was about to happen. That's a challenge for a president as well that we're seeing play out now, which is you want to give people the straight information about what's going on. But you want to do it in a way that you don't panic people. Right. I remember the White House was after intervening in West Africa to contain it there yeah. as much as possible. And you sent 10,000 troops. Yeah and other personnel there to do it. There was some confidence. Tom Frieden at the Center for Disease Control said, I was on a program where he said, we're not going to have a major outbreak here. And this became a source of great yeah. controversy because the government was accused of hiding yeah. what was about to happen. That wasn't the case. He was right. trying to give people straight information.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I mean I think at the end of the day, I think it was somewhere between – the exact numbers escape me, but I think it's somewhere between three and 5,000 people that we sent, military, United States Uniform Health Service professionals. And we were able to stand – So 10,000
1: was over. The number was overstated.
2: Yeah, Yeah, mm-hmm. so the number is a little overstated. Mm-hmm. We were able to stand up capacity in terms of clinics and triage centers to make sure that we're addressing – the manifestation of the Ebola virus where it was happening so that we can then contain it. Mm-hmm. We could then do what we call contact tracing, which is to make sure that anybody who would have been in touch with that sick person, we could track down and we could make sure that that person wasn't manifesting evidence of having the Ebola virus. Mm-hmm. All of these things, that ability to snuff out a epidemic early requires getting information early deploying early and being able to follow the facts in things like contact tracing. Once you jump from trying to contain it to trying to mitigate it, which is where many experts are suggesting we need to be now in the United States because there's so much what we call community spread. Mm -hmm. Not people having traveled to Italy, people having traveled to China but actually people have picked it up. Having never left the United States, mm-hmm. as we learned last night, for one of the players for the Utah Jazz,
1: and now a second today,
2: a second player today, mm-hmm. I hadn't seen that. There is now community transmission, which means we have to be in a position to mitigate it. First, best is to be forward leaning enough, be forward deployed enough, and to be able to gather enough data so that you can contain it and snuff it out. Because of the good work by you know Secretary Silvio Burwell, by Ron Klain, by Lisa Monaco, by Marty Dempsey. Uh, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time, the senior ranking military mm-hmm. officer in the United States, to deploy that many people overseas, we were able to be in a position to do that.
1: You also, uh, as a result of this, created a permanent directorate in the National Security Council that was dedicated to early detection of potential pandemics yeah. and early coordinated action to deal with them. Yeah. I raise that because that office that was headed uh, most recently by Admiral Ziemer, who was an expert on these issues, was disbanded by the Trump administration in 2018.
2: Yeah, May 2018.
1: Would that have made a
2: difference? Well, like, I mean, I I don't want to woulda, coulda, shoulda, this, but I I, do- Well, I kind of invited
1: you to. Yeah,
2: but I I think the idea behind it, and this this was a recommendation that Ron- Klein made to the National Security Council, the National Security Advisor, the Homeland Security Advisor. So it was a recommendation he, he, Ron, made to Susan Rice, to Lisa Monaco and to the president to say, you know what, rather than spinning this up when we see a crisis, let's have a permanent standing capability inside the National Security Council with experts. The idea then is you don't have to waste any time in trying to get up the understanding chain uh, – the, the chain of knowledge to understand precisely what's happening because you have resident in the White House, some capacity and some people are constantly looking at these questions. So I think it's it stands to reason that having had that capability under the admiral's leadership Right there in the White House would have allowed us to be in a much better position to understand precisely what was happening much more quickly than we appeared to have been. You know, I've read and published reports earlier this week that Secretary Azar at uh, HHS was given a heads up about this mysterious new pneumonia in China in early January by the CDC director. I sure wish that we'd have gotten really spun up, relying on resident capacity inside that directorate at the National Security Council, I wish it wouldn't have been disbanded. And then we'd have been ahead of this by a couple of months.
1: Yeah, we also learned this week that there was a a research lab in, in the state of Washington that suspected this infection and tried to get permission from Washington to test and ran into a whole bunch of red tape and lost weeks and weeks and weeks there. And we know that became the epicenter, the first cluster in the US.
2: This is a perfect example of why you want to have a well-run interagency process, that is to say a table at which all the agencies involved in a crisis are debating, deliberating, and deciding about issues that need to get resolved and why you should have a a White House coordinator running that effort. Mm-hmm. Because if Ron Klein were running that effort and there was that kind of red tape, it would be elevated to that table and they'd resolve it. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't sit there with untested swabs for, it sounded like days, even weeks. Weeks, yeah. And so, absent a place to elevate those questions, to resolve them, what too often happens is stasis. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a race for time, stasis is obviously not your friend.
1: Now the president did, relatively recently, appoint the vice president to head up a group. They seem to be doing what you yep. suggest needed to be done. I mean, what what's your observation been of that operation?
2: Well, you see dimly into it. You know, they they do their uh, daily briefings, but the the so far the briefings don't seem to have been uh, particularly illuminating. But one, I think it is important that he stood this up in the White House and underscored its importance by asking the Vice President to take this on. I will say that you know Vice President Biden took on a range of really tough assignments going back to the stimulus package and the implementation of the stimulus yeah. package in two thousand nine, two thousand. Ron Klain
1: was involved in that as well. Yeah,
2: and and I think that showed the importance of high level attention to a matter, recognition that. There's going to be roadblocks that need to be run through by senior leadership. But also then holding people to account so that that money was not misused well, was effectively I remember the vice spent. president
1: was on the phone every day with, with governors and yeah. mayors, and uh, which is another element of this because our public health system is not a federal public health system as much as it is a, a patchwork of Correct. local and state – Agencies, so the level of coordination between the federal government and these local and state yeah. agencies is important as well. What, what should so? The- I'd
2: say uh, let me just finish one thought on Pence, and then I want to tell a quick story about that about Ron's job, yeah. Ron and Lisa, the good work that they did on a particular issue as it related to Ebola. But so on Vice President Pence, I think it's good that he's leading this effort. I, the the question, and it's good that he's meeting with governors. I hope we get to the point where the White House will let the agencies of the federal government and the experts in those agencies be able to speak candidly. It looks like Dr. Tony Fauci who is a national treasure. He's mm-hmm. been doing this for years with countless administrations. He is out there. I think his presence he uh, seems publicly, pretty unbridled. He's unbridled, you know, the, he's not bridalable. bull. Yes. He is uh very candid. Expert who you want out there. So that's a good sign. And he's
1: consistently warned how serious this is. He
2: sure is. So that's a good sign. So let's make sure. So I'm glad that the vice president's leading this. Let's make sure that they're getting decisions made so that the bottlenecks don't keep manifesting. And then let's make sure that they're letting the experts speak. Let's hear from the doctors and the experts like Tony Fauci rather than hearing from kind of White House spokespeople or other ways. Well, or really... how about
1: the president of the United States? Well, I, I mean, one of the issues here is the president obviously has leave to say whatever he says. I always used to say when we were in the White House that I was sensitive to the fact that the words the president spoke and the words that people spoke in his name could send armies marching and markets tumbling. We've seen examples of that during this saga here. Last night, the president spoke. I raised this experience uh, on TV. I had an Negative experience. I, I was responsible as much as anybody for it. During the, we had a oil leak in the Gulf during 2009. People were very panicked in that region about mm-hmm. it. We couldn't get the oil leak stopped for many weeks. Somehow we had the technology to get a camera a mile down to show the oil leaking, but we couldn't figure out how to stop the oil from leaking. And it looked like an example of rank incompetence and people were panicked. And the president, we said he had come back from meetings in Europe. We said, you've got to address the nation. Well, the reality is we hadn't fully formulated our response. And he did speak to the nation. And it had the exact opposite effect that we hoped because he we didn't have a fully formulated plan. My hope before the speech last night we record this on Thursday, it'll probably be heard by our listeners on Monday, was that the president would do that, that he would have a fully formulated, that he would lay out candidly the scope of the problem, which is enormous, that he would be candid about what would be required of all of us to deal with it because it's going to be major sacrifice for at least a short period of time, and that he would lay out the steps that the government was going to take in order to help us through on things like the strain that's going to be on our public health system and public health facilities, shortages of materials, the impact on workers who are going to miss time either because they're sick and can't go to work or because their children are home from school and there's no one to take care of. All of these issues, none of that happened. And in fact, what happened was he announced a policy to uh, stop transit between Europe and the U.S. and implied that Well, parts of Europe, not all of Europe. Yeah, which was curious as well. Yeah. Do you know why – I don't get it. Britain was exonerated or exempted, Exempted. I should say, from that. But also he implied that goods between the countries would be stopped. That created an enormous panic in the markets. He had to tweet after that. That's not what he meant. And it turns out U.S. citizens were going to be allowed back into the country because that also created sure. a panic. And the markets tumbled and no one left that speech feeling reassured about the efforts of the – that's a big piece of this, isn't it?
2: Well, a big piece of it is being able to communicate to the American people both what we know about the threat and then what we're doing about it. If you look at last night, I mean, look, this is now more your terrain than mine, acts, but you choose to do a speech – from the Oval Office with your biggest communicator. This is really important opportunity. So then the question is what about the content? You have the stage set using the Oval Office for an address like that, with the President making the address, getting 10 minutes from all the networks to run the address. It is your best way, unfiltered, to communicate with the American people who are thirsty, starving for Information and data to inform their own decision making. Right. And reassurance. And looking then for reassurance right. that we have a plan. So the stage was set, but I think the content, as you've suggested, did not deliver.
1: Yeah, I know. The cannon got rolled out, and when yeah. they lit the fuse, a flag popped out and said pop. You know, yeah. it was like the old cartoon.
2: Yeah. And the danger here is you don't get a lot of opportunities to do that before people start to question whether they can get good signal, not noise, but good signal from that channel.
1: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. I mean, it's been a recurring theme throughout this presidency, that president very much looks at things through the lens of his own ratings and performance and seemed eager to blame the Europeans for the outbreak and assure people that he was taking unprecedented steps and so on. But one of the things that's happened here is that for weeks, probably concerned about the markets, but he kept telling people this was not going to be a big outbreak, even as Tony Fauci was saying no it actually is and and even as we witnessed
2: it first in China then in Iran then in Iraq uh Italy mm-hmm. manifests this capabilities for transmission and for lethality yeah so we were watching what was happening and the president completely inconsistent with The evidence
1: and his public health experts
2: and his public health experts' observations was making a set of completely different observations.
1: He has done well in life and in politics by spinning to the positive. You can't spin a pandemic. Uh, Pandemics are unspinnable. They're resistant to that kind of public relations techniques. This this is like a rip roaring.
2: Well, when you think about fire. Ron Klain, we've talked about him a lot, he's uh, the Ebola coordinator back in 2014, 2015. You know, Ron made an observation a couple of weeks ago that as we at this moment – he was writing this two weeks ago but I think it's still true now. We know much less about this novel coronavirus than we did about Ebola in 2014, 2015 and the American people know that. So they're thirsty for information. So it's not only that you can't spin it, but you also have to be very candid about what we know yeah. and what we don't know. Right. So if you look back on Ebola, you recall that one of the doctors who came home, acts from having served in West Africa, yeah. treating uh, Ebola-infected patients, then came home and he was in New York City. Yeah. yeah. And uh, one – the subways, after- went bowling. Yeah. One afternoon, Saturday or Sunday afternoon, I forget, he went bowling, he took the – I think he took the train, the metro, the subway, subway they call then. it in yeah. New York, uh, the subway down to Brooklyn to bowl, then he took a an Uber back. And then the next day he started to feel symptomatic. He started to have a fever. And I think that was then on Sunday night that we realized that. And the question was could we have confidence that there was not transmission of Ebola in that Uber or on the subway?
1: or in the bowling alley where you're touching or, a ball or
2: in the bowling alley or among his friends and the only way there would have been is if he were symptomatic at the time because what we the science had told us is that the only time you're shedding virus is when you're symptomatic if you're having intestinal issues and if you, or if you're fever, if you've got a fever and this is sunday night and the next morning monday morning millions of people get on the subway system in new york but the president made a decision with Ron and with Lisa in coordination with the New York City mayor and the uh, governor of New York, based on the science. And then we're very candid, the mayor and the governor were very candid with the people of New York about that challenge. That's what the American people expect in a crisis like this. Not yeah. that you spin them, but that you give them information candidly yeah. that can help them inform their decisions.
1: We talked about the need for coordination with state and local governments. What about the need for coordination with other countries when you're dealing with a global pandemic like this? Obviously, Ebola had global implications. There were non-health issues like the financial crisis where, you know, that was a economic pandemic, as it were, where, you know, you had to coordinate – with other governments, I, I ask this and I don't mean to this to be honestly a beat down yeah. on Trump, but I'm trying to underscore something, which is it's fine to say government is the enemy, deep right. state and all of that until you need it. Right. And it's fine to say that alliances aren't important until you need them. Right. It seems like what we're seeing now in this one episode is an example of both, just how important it is to have a government that people can rely on to deal with something that they can't deal with themselves. There's no individual citizen who is going to conquer this. And there's no country that alone is going to solve this problem because it's a global pandemic.
2: Right. And until we're all working together, we're not going to be able to snuff it out. There's a remarkable – I think a remarkable piece in the New York Times this morning by Mark Landler where he characterizes kind of what the international community looks like now as it's trying to react to this – what has now been characterized by the World Health Organization as a pandemic. And he suggests that it's – rather than being an orchestra, it's a cacophony of activity. And he says, to continue the analogy, that normally you would expect – the orchestra director, to be the United States. Yes,
1: it has been since World War II.
2: And successive presidents, Republicans and Democrats relying on expertise resident in the United States government at places like the CDC and the NIH, the Uniform Health Service of the United States, State Department, Defense Department, relying on that expertise and that experience to lead a global response, not because it's good for the globe, although it is, but because it's good for the United States. Yeah, And it's hard not to read that Landler story today and then pair it with the fact that many of our European allies, our closest allies, wake up this morning to learn that the president made this Did announcement. Did not
1: consult with them that he was cutting off. Uh, not
2: only didn't consult with them, didn't, didn't even just give them a heads up Yeah, that it was coming. And so the question just is what does that do – for the day when we need to collaborate, cooperate with them. And why would we need to collaborate and cooperate with them? Well, in the first instance, we have months of experience now with different manifestations of this virus. So I would hope we'd have a better handle on the attributes of the virus, what it reacts to, what it does not react to, how it's transmissible, what are its – Manifestations when it's in crisis, one gets the sense again we don't we see dimly into all the all that's happening inside the government. But I get the distinct sense, ax, that there is not the kind of data sharing that would facilitate us again getting up this knowledge curve more quickly so that we can inform our decision makers with the best available information. Mm-hmm. Now the same is true not just going from. United States out, but inside the United States, as you suggested a minute ago, individual governors are making decisions, having to make decisions. Individual school districts are making decisions, and we have to make sure that that information is flowing freely from CDC to state health officials, even to local health officials, so that doctors are getting the best available information when they're treating parents, uh, patients, and that. School districts and governors are getting the best available information when they're making decisions,
1: and at least on an advisory basis, the CDC can set standards
2: that local agencies can can rely on. Can rely on. Yeah. Yeah. And then they can help make decisions. So, giving the benefit of that is manifold. One is you can have some confidence that you're making a decision based on the best available science. One, two is you can reassure Americans that this is, a, this is a series of decisions that are unfolding pursuant to an established process informed by that best available information rather than a series of fairly ad hoc decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And the papers are full of uh, reactions to that from state and local officials this morning too saying like we, we're having a hard time knowing exactly what to uh, decide and when. Um, so we have to get that collaboration, that cooperation much more fluid than it has been. Yeah. I and by wa- the way, that's the White House's job, right? They don't do the communication, but they coordinate that activity across the government so that bottlenecks get reduced, information gets shared, best practices get shared, and good decisions can be made.
1: You also had a White House chief of staff now departed who just a couple of weeks ago appeared at the CPAC convention here and called the threat of a pandemic a hoax. That was devised to undermine the president's reelection chances. The irony of that being that it turns out that there were people at the CPAC conference who had coronavirus. And now we have a bunch of legislators who are conservative legislators, including the president's incoming chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who are self quarantining yeah. because they were exposed to the virus. I was getting, that's what I was getting at before about the politicization of this process. And, you know, I know there'll be people on the right who will say, well, you know, you're politicizing it by criticizing the president here. And that's not my purpose because there is a protocol for dealing with these things that are not political. And the question is whether that protocol has been followed. But there's no doubt that the president at all times is cognizant of the fact that he's running for re-election. And so that goes back to the spinning of facts in a way that is – Detremel, and you saw the sort of amen chorus on the right yeah. on Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, and so on. Laura Ingraham minimizing this and essentially suggesting that this was all a political contrivance. Limbaugh saying this is nothing worse than the common cold. Yeah. He has 28 million listeners. Yeah. Fox News has a huge audience. Millions of people each night watch their primetime programming. That complicates the ability to rally the country to do the things that are necessary in a crisis like this.
2: A lot of times, in fact, this is what we're experiencing now, right, is especially when you get into the mitigation phase of dealing with the transmission of this virus, is individuals, for their own sake or on behalf of their families, have to make decisions. And so how, how how are you getting informed about how to make those decisions? Well, you're looking at a variety of sources and you're looking for noise. And you're looking for signal. You're trying to avoid the noise and you're trying to get signal. And, you know, I can recall, as I'm sure you can, Axe, many times with President Obama where he was very candid that, you know, he knew he had to do something that was not necessarily in his political interest.
1: Yeah. But you. We were faced with many of those decisions because we came to office in the time of an epic economic crisis yeah. and two raging wars.
2: Yeah, so that's what you're elected to do is to advance the national interest irrespective of the impact on your political interest. and um, you know and, and look, for as the chief of staff, you're obviously making decisions and helping the president make decisions to advance the interests of the president. But you're also making decisions to advance and protect the institution of the presidency. Yeah. And I, I don't, I have a hard time understanding the basis for Mr. Mulvaney to go out and to make the assertions that he made. Yeah. And so.
1: Calling it a hoax. Calling it a hoax. Yeah. It's dangerous. And speaking of Mulvaney, he was replaced. He's. I think now we have the fourth uh, chief of staff, but not just the fourth chief of staff, but we've had a series of national security advisors, a rotating set of staff there. We talked about the National Security Council being shrunken, Mm -hmm. and that's been accelerated because the president apparently was angry about leaks out of the Mm -hmm. National Security Council. What is the impact of all of that as someone who's run that operation?
2: A lot of what you do uh, relies on muscle memory and builds on lessons learned from the last crisis. We just talked through the lessons we learned from H1N1. How did we apply those to Ebola, Ebola, the lessons from Ebola? What do we think those are uh, and how how might those be applicable um, for this crisis? And if what you're doing is constantly shuffling out people, you don't have the benefit of that muscle memory. One two is, and perhaps more profoundly is it's no secret why they seem to be moving people out they right. seem to be moving people out not because they're unprofessional or because they're inexperienced or because they lack expertise they're moving people out because they're talking truth to power. Right. They're telling, they're, the president,
1: they're telling the president things that he doesn't want to hear. They're
2: telling him hard truths, Yeah, which is the job description for a White House staff
1: person. It is. And look, we both experienced it. There were times when I said things to President Obama that he didn't want to hear. And uh, I had the benefit of a long relationship with him, yeah. but even then it was, you know, it's uncomfortable. And sometimes he would be a little peeved in response. Yes. But he also knew at some level that that was our jobs and that he needed to know, he needed to hear different points of view and he didn't need just affirmation because he might not be right. Right. About some things that makes you more effective as a president, and you're right. I think that's deeply concerning. And now the president has surrounded himself with his most loyal apparatchiks. Yeah, he appointed his former body man, the guy who traveled with him and carried his stuff, to be the White House personnel director, with apparently the assignment of purging the government of people who they deem disloyal to Trump.
2: Yeah, they based on some kind of ideology test, yeah, rather than an expertise capability test.
1: Which, in a moment like this, seems Most alarming when you need those experts. Just talk a little bit about what it's like to have that responsibility in times of crisis when you're the White House chief of staff or when you're a senior member of the uh, National Security Council and you don't yet have a handle on something that could have profoundly negative implications in terms of loss of life, economic uh, impact, and so on.
2: Yeah. Well, I was talking to some of my students um, today – uh, about this, X, about how – and we talked about it at the start about the, the, the best leaders in the government, the best policy makers, not just in government but generally, are able to multitask and it's really hard to multitask when one of the tasks or one of the crises on your plate may, may impact your own family, may impact your neighbors, may yeah. impact – I have a lot of sympathy for the pressure that the White House is under at the moment because this is a profound crisis and it's very difficult to be able to separate from that and you can't help that. You can't help as a parent but worry about the impact of the what's happening on your own kids. So you got to get over that. You got to manage that. The second is you have to recognize that. You inevitably feel responsible for problems, screw-ups, hiccups and that can be debilitating sometimes if you become so risk-averse that you don't let yourself and you don't encourage your team to be thinking creatively on these new challenges. If all you see is risk, then you freeze.
1: Yeah. I actually, and I'm sure I'll get some uh, responses by saying this, have some sympathy for the Vice President Pence here because he's trying to manage both a crisis and the president. And you can see it in the statements that he's making yeah. about trying to give the president, you know, because of his vision, because of his foresight, the president had the good sense to and so on and try and he's trying to spin things as positively as possible yeah. from a political standpoint. Yeah. But But that often gets in the way of the other thing. It just has to be enormously stressful. Yeah. I mean it is the assignment he
2: chose to accept but it's a difficult one. Like, can uh, I say one last thing? Yeah, in, sure. Which is what are the assets you have? When you're feeling distracted because you're worried about your family, you're feeling distracted because you're worried about the enormity of the stakes. What you have is decades, now a couple of centuries, of experience of what the American people can do when they have best available information. Yeah. When they're leveled with, when you tell them the hard truths, when you don't spin them. Yeah. That's asset number one. Yes. Asset number two is this experience and capability inside the government. These are people who have now seen monumental challenges. Dr. Tony Fauci, yes. 79 years old, is a national Look, looks treasure. Looks pretty good by the way. but Yeah. Is a national 79, treasure. 79,
1: you know, is the new 50s. So. Apparently. Yeah.
2: Um, as a 50-year-old, I feel that. <laughs> I will say this. I loved seeing him in meetings because the guy induces confidence, because, yeah. he, because he is an expert. So those two attributes, those two assets, far outweigh all the other stuff.
1: Yeah. You just need to use them You just need properly. to use them. So let me finish by saying, first of all, I so enjoyed serving with you because I never – right, I, I, I knew at every moment where your values and commitments were. All right and, back at you. Uh, that was true of the team. But I wish them the best, the White House right now. I think of my family, my community – and uh, my country and the people who are suffering and the people who are fearful now. And they need this Amen. White House and they need this government to do its job and to call on us to do ours. Yeah. You know, we'll get through this. Hopefully we'll get through it with as little damage as we can Amen. can, given the enormity of it. But anyone who roots against them is rooting against themselves and the country at this point that'd be the wrong thing to do.
2: Amen. I, I couldn't agree more.
1: Dennis McDonough, always great to great see to you. See I'm Thanks sorry that me. it took a crisis to get you back here, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's great to be with Thanks you. Thanks for having
2: me.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel, and special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Less. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.